On September 18, 1959, an unassuming-looking man named Harvey Murray Gotten was executed in San Quentin Prison in California, having pled guilty to the rape and murder of three women. He sought no trial by jury, nor did he seem to make an effort to save his own life. He seemed well aware of the course his crimes had set him on, and if anything, he seemed to desire his final end. It's about what I wanted, he was quoted as saying, as he was led to the gas chamber. Goldman had lured at least three women to their death, snapping pictures of them, bound, raping them, strangling them, and dumping their bodies in the desert. In Goldman's telling, the killing was almost incidental, a means to dispose of the evidence of the crime which truly motivated him. The photographing of visibly terrified women, bound in rope, true expressions of terror which will forever be preserved in lurid photograph. In the press at the time, Gopin seemed an appalling aberration, best left forgotten as quickly as possible. The reality was, he was anything but. This shy and diffident-seeming man would end up a precursor, even a model for a kind of criminal who would become endemic in the post-war era. Out of the golden age of Hollywood, a new golden age of serial murder had been born. The technology and economic boom of the post-war epoch would bring with it a tsunami of crime to the United States crested by a distinct breed of serial murder for which Harvey Gopman was a prototype. As will be explored in this podcast series, Harvey Gopman was itself nothing new. The instincts which inform serial murder have been around as long as hominids have walked on two feet. The dreadful inclination towards such incomprehensible barbarities stretched back to antiquity and beyond. They reside in legend, folklore and art throughout the world. They lurk in our deepest fears and darkest desires. They have brought us together as often as they have ripped us apart. To borrow from Dr. Peter Voronsky, whose book Sons of Cain will be a foundational source for this podcast series, it is these very instincts which may be in significant measure responsible for why Homo sapiens, sapiens, the knowledgeable man, as we so call ourselves, emerge the victor in a war for survival and supremacy among hominids, triumphing at last over the Neanderthals. We are a species built for violence, our survival found to a significant degree on campaigns of murder, rape and cannibals. Yet while we are savage, we are also wise, as we have in many millennia since evolved the capacity for empathy, compassion, reverence and restraint and built entire civilizations to control and channel our impulses towards more productive, sustainable, occasionally humane ends. However, the savage quality within our psyche never left us, nor does our awareness of it. Our fear of the atavistic imprint within us became a fear of wild nature, of what French author George Bastet called sacred monsters, a monstrousness outside the bounds of humanity confined to supernatural. We externalize our fears, banishing the darkest corners of the human psyche to the most remote corners of the wilderness. We channel our fears and sublimated desires into the legendary monsters who lurk in the dark forest, men who can become wolves under the light of the moon or transform into blood-drinking bats who obscure its light, men who have evidently reverted to a bestial state in some cases, or those whose savage thirst for blood remained hidden under a manned aristocratic mean. Yet like all myths, these legends are in their way real. What was recounted in oral tradition, printed on manuscripts and painted in religious and secular art, is not of a world which does not exist. It is of a world which, until recently, could only be illuminated through imagined or symbolic representation of depiction. That is until the modern world brought the invention of the camera, which would capture not a depicted or described image, but one as it appears to us exactly, but as Mutish aficionados know, a picture often tells us more about the photographer than it does the subject, which is where we return to Harvey Goldman. 
It is strangely fitting these murders would occur in Los Angeles, a city of dreams illuminated on film. Several years after Elizabeth Short's body had been left posed in what some suspect was an imitation of a classic work of serious art, a medium most associated with photography, Harvey Goldman had illuminated his twisted dreams on the celluloid canvas. I do not mean through this description to imbue these acts with a quality of grandeur. On the most basic level, killers like Goldman used photos of pornography to recall and relive the erotic thrill of the original memory. Yet in a sense, to the perpetrator at least, it was something grand. Goldman himself was a twisted malformation, invisible, irrelevant. His life was short, pathetic, and in of itself unremarkable. Yet, due to the modern magic of the camera, Harvey Goldman was able to manifest the darkest corner of his psyche on film, preserving these dreadful moments forever. The photos became, in a sense, a display of mastery, not only over his victims, but over time and life itself. American Indians who would first encounter photography were so perturbed by its ability to forever preserve a moment in time, they assumed a piece of one's soul must be left in the photo. Harvey Goldman would have dreamed of nothing higher than this to be true. I suspect that, like the horrified and baffled response of the world to Goldman's crimes, the tribes people weren't able to fully understand something that was about to happen to them when they encountered the bearers of the camera, something that would uproot the world they lived in and their relationship to it forever. This podcast, at the most basic level, is about how the post-war explosion of violence changed the United States' relationship to itself forever, though it's about so much more. This is episode one of the Golden Age of Serial Murder. Hi there, I'm Toby, co-host of the Golden Age of Serial Murder, and this is my co-host, Simeon. Hi, Simeon. It is kind of, when we were first starting, you were you were looking at Harvey Gladman, you were saying that it was almost like a lizard. You yeah. know, it's kind of true. <laughs> I mean, I mean <laughs> normal people. Yeah, yeah, it, it's like a a subterranean thing, a sort of reptilian thing that he's he's under. There's parts of actually his uh, childhood that that I think shock me because you know he he's he's at a school and he's being tested. He's a, he's, he has an aptitude test and his reading comprehension is high, verbal comprehension is high, his ath- arithmetic scores are high. So his his core theoretical reasoning is quite high. All of this stuff, it's all of these things are firing like he's a normal person, you know, and, and other things, mm-hmm. a, a medium. And then like, he's like in broad daylight and, and then, you know, on the, on the cover of night, he's attacking women, like, you know, like stealing their purses and just harassing them for, you know, for no reason. But as if, he had no control over it at all, and and that's and I thought something that, that particularly sticks out to me about this character because he's not charismatic rhetorician. You know, he's not. He's not. Yeah. He's not Ted Bundy. He, there isn't this. You know, aristocratic mean that's uh, mm-hmm. that's evoked from you know understanding him or engaging with him. It's almost like this is some sort of reptile, but then what remains shocking about him is that there is this higher level of humanness that that he did have, but it just but it almost seems like a cloak. Yeah, I mean it, it, it's a little bit like um, Jeffrey Dahmer, whose IQ is in the mid one forties, 
know, his dad was a, was a PhD, a chemist. And actually, unlike Gladman, he, he, was, he was able to use some sort of social ability, at least in order to pick people up in bars. But I suppose Gladman did, you know, did that with his trying to get those women, but he, he always made a bad impression. He always seemed creepy to people. When, so, I mean, it's, it's interesting because if you look at, 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 at Ted Bundy, what's interesting is, is that people said from a young age, he was, you know, he, he, he always seemed like there, was, there wasn't anything there. He built that, is what you see with psychopathic individuals, he built his personality and, and start out kind of unsure of themselves, like aliens dropped into a, you know, but, but they learn and are able to use those things and, and eventually become extremely good at them, most of them, but Harvey Gladman, not as much. And there's a sort of a, uh, a similarity. There's basically two different types. I mean, you can, you can, you, there are the more pro-social, the ones who, are, who create a much more convincing mask. But then there are the ones like Harvey Gladman who are less so. And part of it is there's, there seems to be something missing in terms of um, the inclination towards sociality, not, not just if you're looking at all types of people like that, the psychopathic end of antisocial personality, none of them have any real affection for the human race, but some of them are narcissistic and want to have a certain status within it. And some of them, I think, like in Harry Glattman's case, have even, even none of that. And, and I wonder how much of the depression and the death drive is due to having no inclination to sociality. Because if you look at people like Bundy or Gacy or BTK or whatever, none of them are like, they're all trying to, they're all scheming to make, to, to, to fix, to fix things. And like, they're not just like, Oh, just kill me, whatever, you know? And so that is a difference between that type of person. Uh, and so there, no, no, it is, it, it's, it, it is, and it is interesting because you can look at some people. We have EEG, we have sort of visual imaging and neuroimaging of the brain. And you can see the, in, in like an adult psychopath, the inactivity in the limbic system, the lack of the, the lack of, of, of arousal in the, in the emotional uh, traffic there. And we don't always know why that happens, what the, what, what, what the, uh, the origin of that is, what the cause is. But when you're, but what's interesting is when you look at this case, it is one of those like Bundy actually, where you see such deviation from normal development at such a young age, but in ways that are different too. Cause you, I think what you see is you see that really early, the early hyper arousal with the ropes and everything like that. And that is, that is a, that's obviously not not particularly common. I mean, they're, they're, it's not like every every boy becomes sexually aware at the same age. That's certainly not the case. Some do before others, but at the age of three, there's something else. When it, it's it's already going in kind of a different and parallel direction. And one of the interesting things is is when you look at sadistic offenders in jail, 
compared to say a pedophile. They're nor a normal pedophile. They have found that they can make those desires go away through chemical castration, but that doesn't even work with sadists. They're sort of incurably wired a particular way. And I think what it is is that at root, it's it's deeper than the sexuality. It's it's the sexuality gets keyed into something else, and it's but you can't fix it by eliminating the sexuality because it's it has a deeper drive, and yet it's expressed through sexual acts. And, and what's interesting is, is that so is that there are certainly things that are normal about Harvey Glattman and things that are, and he, and he has the certain elements of superior intelligence. You know, it's kind of what's fascinating to see is it's kind of like if you took a lizard or a lower order primate and gave them the basic elements of a human of human intellect without any of the evolved sociality, without any of that advanced stuff. Like if you, if you, if you put a human brain in a crocodile or if you put, or if you, or if you gave a superior IQ to a chimpanzee, you know, but with none of the other elements, that's, that's kind of, you see that. And there are a lot, a fair number of these guys in, from the pro-social types to the more asocial types who have a high IQ. But there's clearly something in their brains fundamentally that isn't attuned. And I, I'm, I don't actually know why that is in the case of Harvey Gladman. You could say I have a theory about in some other cases. So what were Harvey Gladman's uh, first crimes? Let's rewind just a bit. Let's, let's inform people exactly what the definition of a serial killer is, because Harvey Gladman is one, although only barely according to his numbers. So mm -hmm. a serial killer is someone who kills at intervals rather than someone who goes and shoots up a school or someone who loses their mind because they find their wife cheating on them or kills, kills their abusive father. Those are crimes of passion or reaction or, but when a serial killer, you have, they kill at intervals and they do it either through increasing compulsion, like we see with Harvey Gladman where it, it takes control of them like a drug addiction and they, and they become more and more, you know, degenerated over time or they, or they're more controlled and even more cold and calculating. And they just, and they just, and they're, and they just prey on others because they have a desire. They, you know, they, 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 it, it fits their, it's what they want. It's a, in some cases you have people who are not driven to kill as much as they just like it. And they just, and then on other cases, which is most of the time, they, they, um, they progress to a point where they totally lose control and it, it, it takes total control of them. The, the, the old way they would measure it is you're a serial killer. If you've killed three people at three different times. Now I think it's just, they've, they've narrowed it down to two because they can see the pattern. Harvey Gladman was convicted of three uh, murders, attempted a fourth. And I think there's one, woman named uh, Dorothy Howard, who he killed in Boulder, he suspected. And I think, I don't know if you read that, where he said, where he was asked about it. And he seemed, he seemed like he was going to, like he clearly had done it, but he wasn't going to divulge it because it was something he could still keep to himself. And so he's a, so he was, uh, let's just go back also here. He was, so people know he was born in, in the Bronx in 1927. His family moved to Colorado. He would eventually end up in Los Angeles. Not uncommon for Jewish families to go to to, uh, to New York. 
I think they might have actually lived in Brooklyn, but success story, you know, like uh, born in born in Brooklyn, lives in Los Angeles, you know. It would have been, you know, the interesting thing is, is that I know for people, including my godfather, the Jewish guy, grew up in um, in Brooklyn, but in the 1940s, where there was a bustling, kind of successful, a vibrant, humming village culture, mm-hmm. but 20s hadn't become that. And you sort of think of, you know, it, it was sort of had this this kind of this kind of they said it felt kind of like a European ghetto. It was it, they, they hadn't Jewish people hadn't settled in and made it their own yet. And of course, you have the depression in the 30s and everything like that. So so I think that they, like some other people, thought you go west to find a better place in America. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's what they did. Although. I would have been strange because. This was a time when Jewish uh, people were not a mainstreamed population anyway. And a lot of people had not actually seen Jewish people. There's a funny anecdote. The baseball star, Hank Greenberg, uh, he was playing in the minor leagues around, I think it was the 30s or 40s. People would go to the stadium just to see a Jewish person. There were people who thought, well, are they green? You know, do they have, like, do they have other features? Like, people ha- didn't know. And he was a really... <laughs> And, he, and Hank Greenberg could have easily passed for just any old German-looking guy, unlike Harvey Gladman. Harvey, I'm afraid, did look kind of like a nebbish. And, you know, and maybe you have a lot more people like that in, in New York. But there is that, there is that whole thing of um, that insecurity, if you're kind of a nebbishy, diminutive Jewish guy. Mm-hmm. So that was already something that might have stood out a little bit living in Denver. And I think what uh, – so I think that that did not help. Certainly, when he was probably trying, probably trying to fit in in school, but it's also not explain. It's not definitive. It's not explanatory. It doesn't really. Um, it, it you know it there's a, it's sort of similar to um, his relationship with his family. His dad being a bit strict, like most were, you know, not not. This is before the era of the kind of the of parenting begun with hippie generation. We had more of the touchy feely dad. Mm-hmm. Mothers in general a bit kind of uh, warm and touchy feely. But not as much the you know, but the, not as much the dads in that generation, perhaps. Mm-hmm. Although my dad's father is pretty warm, or was. <laughs> but, uh, but 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 yeah, I mean it, it's it, it's it's uh it's one of those things where you could look at like that psychologist who's interviewing him and trying to understand him. Maybe look at certain things with his family, certain you know dynamics that could have been better, but it's not. Anywhere near some of the extreme cases, abuse, neglect, or dysfunction in the family that that you see with some other killers, that you could say, well, this explains a lot of how they developed into this malformed human being. It it seems entirely consistent with the time, even the ethnic ethnicness of Harvey Goldman cannot really be found in his social relations or his social engagements you know this is a this is a young guy in school who has reflected on being bullied by uh young girls for you know the way he looked but not in a not in an ethnic way just yeah. as you know the kind of pattern of you know social formative experience that happens i i, I you know probably for a lot of of, of people it's very, very ordinary on that level. And, and obviously the, the relationship of the mother and the father also seems quite ordinary. Yeah, I mean, it, it, when, you, when you look at certain types of conditions people have, you know, someone has a tendency towards depression 
or a particular or some other clinical issue that's that's more on the level of the brain, you know, not as deep as a personality disorder, but as it, there are certain things that there, so there are certain things that are normal that can seem accentuated to someone who has a a condition of some sort. I know I've read people who've had depression talk about abuse, and then you read it and you and you um, you say, well, it doesn't seem like much, but they just have incredibly thin skin. But in this case, well, he does seem to be someone who has, on an existential level, pretty a level of despair. It's not. It isn't someone who's depressed or, or, or anxious uh, on, on the level of a, of a um, mental problem. It does seem to be, and personality disorders, it is a term that is a little bit fraught because you can, you can pathologize normal traits or just traits that are just, that are just a different type of person rather than being a problem. But obviously something is deeply wrong with this guy in a way which cannot be explained through external cause, even if you could say it's interacting with stuff. I think what it is is that it's the is that the essential problem with his personality, the inadequacy, the asociality, the the uh, antisocial and violent and deviant aspects. In some ways, they'll take anything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like it's looking for a narrative, and then picks whatever kind of um whatever kind of relational inadequacy that appears you know just just through lived experience and then makes that its reason for this degenerative force i i, I think I mean, and then, yeah, yeah, lots of people lots of men have have uh, an inadequacy with women or that that they you know that they grow out of or they you know just an uncomfortable you know discomfort with it but it seems to me that the inadequacy is deeper than that. And it actually is not about women. It's, it's, it's about himself. And it's, and it's at a fundamental human level. And it yes. matters in, in, in a uh, growing resentment and hatred towards women, because I think there's something in their inter interactions that just hits that personal inadequacy so perfectly. Mm-hmm. Because, and you, you see that with some other people where, where let's say they, they, some of their killers, uh, one, someone will talk about later in the series, Andre Chikatilo at some point, where he interprets his problems with erectile dysfunction as this fundamental attack of, on himself as a, as a strong Russian man and blames others for it, even though... It's just, you know, you can interpret that in any number of ways and you could treat it, but it's, it's that you have already a, a sense, a, a negative sense of oneself and a, an inadequacy that is at the level of baseline psychology that, that then sort of turned into this, this narrative about women. And, um, and I think when you look at someone who is a, a sadistic uh, individual. And I would describe Harvey Glattman as a fledgling, what's called a sexual sadist and a fledgling variety. You see more elaborate cases later on, uh, uh, you know, as, but in this case, it's almost like in, in very much like he is a prototype for these type of 
individuals, <clears throat> he's also in many ways a stage one. He, 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 he doesn't, he obviously arrested fairly early on in his life for the final time, after many other arrests, but he, he, he doesn't really develop uh, as much as some others do. He has a kind of an arrested life in every respect. Um, yeah. And, and, you know, and the, there's this systemic problem that he has psychologically and then there's the, the 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 sexual side. So by the age of twelve, he's he's do, he's doing kind of uh, he, not only he's masturbating, as you know, other young men enter in, you know into a similar age of sexual knowledge of one, of themselves, but he's also uh, engaging in a kind of bondage system and and, uh, and habits that he's developing with ropes. And he, he and he's he, he has a quite, I think, you know, in some ways he's arrested, but in some ways he has a, a, a sort of an overdeveloped sexuality from a very, very young age. That is and this almost, is something that you do see uh, yeah. in this in, in very consistently in the 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 typology of sexual sadism. It is something that to every, to, you know, from one extreme to the other. And what I think it is, is that it's a development that has, that goes off script, off the, off the rails very, very, very early. And I think what you can tell also is that it's telling that it's so early, you know, three years old, he's already playing with the ropes. He's already using them in a kind of a sexual way. And that to me says that what you have is a replacement for the normal track of sexual development where, where the sexuality is, is being linked to something other than the normal track. It's already gone off the train into the woods and is heading somewhere totally different, even if it's parallel. And it's a type of arousal that is not does not follow necessarily the same rules. It could be through a certain uh, physiological excitement that then provokes the, the, the uh, sexual arousal because this is not someone, I don't think about erectile dysfunction necessarily like Chikatilo, but in the case of Chikatilo, he was able to only able to achieve an erection through violence. So it was already, but it wasn't a directly, it wasn't, a, it wasn't, it was, it was a kind of a result of a of an a, a overall excitation. And in the case of Harvey Glattman, I think that what it does is that his sexuality becomes compartmentalized and and uh, into this in, into what this is. And and my theory of it is that ropes are the key point to understanding him. Is his obsession with ropes, and you know, the camera comes later. It's, it's rope is the key point with Harvey Glattman. And it's, and what we see in his case, he's a fetishistic, what people called a lust murderer back in the day. It's a, he, what uh, would you say the early, um, you know, the, the early burglaries and harassing of women in, in Denver uh, before he, de he develops his more sort of overt and in, an aggressive campaign of, 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 of rapes and, you know, at least the photography and then finally the killings. What would you say about these early sort of formative attempts? Because you, you have the, his 
distorted uh, sexual socialization. Then you actually have him, you know, on street corners attacking women, uh, robbing women. You know, he 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 stopped at rape at this point, you know, and he rarely actually took the the money from from the women at at this point. But he he's engaging in this kind of behavior. And uh, Denver authorities are quickly understanding that there's a, a, a string of unsolved burglaries and, and robberies and women being accosted uh, on the streets. Yeah, so what would you say about that earlier? Well, what I'd say is the entire, the entire trajectory, starting with the ropes at age three and going through all of this, is a prototypical case of step-by-step escalation. And each of those things is part of the same trajectory. It's part of the same, each of these fulfills an important function. And so when you start, and it's important to take it step by step. We, so when you start at age three, he's playing around with these ropes. And I think what that is about is, and it's important to note, it's not just the, that it's, a, it's about bondage. Because you could, I think it's specifically about, there's something very particular to rope. Because that allows you levels of control that you that aren't necessarily achieved through other means of uh, constraint, and you see this with uh, you know a generation later with one of the people inspired by this uh, Dennis Rader, the BTK as he called himself. That in both of these cases, both these guys were in the Boy Scouts, and, and when one of the things I wasn't, but one of the things you you learn in that you learn different things you can do. <laughs> you tie different types of knots. Dennis Rader and <laughs> knew how to tie various types of knots. So the first thing when you're talking about rope is that it's not just something that can be used to constrain someone. It's mm-hmm. that it can be used to create different types of knots. You can do it in different ways. You can play around with it, play around with the way all the different ways you can control something with rope. You can, you know how to you. It's it's a malleable form of control. And so what I think you see starting with that in the case of Harvey Glattman is someone who is intrinsically inadequate and so looks to, uh, to exert external control. And when you play around with ropes, you're already t- starting to do that before you even use it on someone by the way you can manipulate it into different knots. And um, the Dennis Rader, the BTK, he would, uh, he would just play around with them at, at various points by himself, just tying different types of knots. And that is in some ways a, a rehearsal, but it's also you're already exerting control. You're already manipulating the material. And I also suspect that there's something central about it. There's something about the feel of a rope that might, that, that, that might have been, you know, have corresponded to the, the you know, the, the sense, both the softness and the, the coarseness that uh, uh, you know may have he may have given him the initial idea of of, uh, of tying it around his uh, his penis and even at such at such an early age as he did at the age of three. So then, when you see this, all the different stages from that point on, all of these things may seem different, but they're all of a piece. They're all taking one step along this alternate path through the woods as he's gone off the rails, one step each way, part of the way, increasing his confidence, increasing his, his experiments with control. And you see this consistently 
in this kind of people is that you have you have stages along the way, such as stealing women's underwear or spying on women or fo just following them places, committing a burglary. They're progressively knocking down psychological barriers to the sort of crime that they're heading towards. And they're also practicing their craft, in a sense. And what I found surprising about Harvey Glattman was that he seemed to be a very insecure person socially and not necessarily someone who, who displays the, what the terms like fearless dominance you see in some other psychopathic individuals. He's what, in, in, in some of the documents we were looking at, they said a secondary psychopath. And what that essentially means is the more inadequate type, the type that is not entirely psychopathic either, because he, they talk about him having guilt or feelings of guilt or feelings of, rev of revulsion at times, uh, a weak stomach. And in full-blown psychopathic individuals, you do not see this. They are completely unmoved. If you've seen Dennis Rader's uh, court testimony, it's a bit like that. And, uh, and so you see this long line where he, is, uh, where, he, he, where he is building up these steps starting at, from the age of three with his, you know, playing around with ropes uh, on a sexual level, which has seemed incomprehensible. And you were talking about his string of crimes. So maybe for the audience, we could just go through that. So you, you know, so he, he uh, from a very early age, he's, he's experimenting with sadomasochism using ropes at the age of three or four, you know, at, at an incredibly young age. And from then he goes, as you said, there's a clear pattern of escalation. It's not, we don't know the origins of his problems, but we know how they developed, and it's and you can it's doc it's documented, and he go he, you know he he's he's engaging in in autoerotic asphyxia. Uh, eventually, he starts off with tying the rope around his penis uh, as practically a toddler, and then he goes to as you said he began breaking and entering into private residences. This was around the age of twelve. He takes something from each residence. I think what's interesting about that is that. It may not be for the purpose of robbery. I think it's a trophy. One of the things that is a, a, a common fact of pretty much, I'd say all serial killers, is that they take trophies. And this is going to be something we come back to throughout the series. It's, it's, it, it, it's, it's relevant when you look at our uh, ancient past, we look at how we behave in war. And in a sense, they're, they're carrying on a campaign and they're, 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 they're taking uh, trophies of their conquest. So when he goes into someone's house, that's a conquest, much the same way as eventually attacking women will be. It's, it's one step along the way. Age 17, uh, the police caught him in the act of breaking into an apartment of, of Elmer Hammond through a window. In his pockets, they found a length of rope and a 25 caliber pistol. While under interrogation, he confessed to a number of burglaries, but left out the ones with four, you know, four sex. Then charged with first degree robbery and posts and his post a bail and his parents go to the the courthouse to post the bail for him and bring him back 
And while on bail, he abducted Noreen Lauren from her neighborhood. After binding her, he drove out of town to Sunshine Canyon. He touched her, but, but again, he did not rape her at this point. Then he returned home. As she went to the police where she looked at a series of mug shots and identified him. He was rearrested and uh, at this time no bail pending, which 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 shows you that the, the, the extent of the systemic irregularity of this individual. Like he's he's out on bail for something, but he's so driven by the, the the alchemy of his sexual social desires and his inadequacy to commit another one of these crimes and again it speaks to this sort of reptilian part of 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 of, of, of Harvey Galvin. I think there's nothing else he cares about and the, and I think what also there's something he gets out of these that goes beyond the sexuality it or even just be or even control because in these actions, ranging from the burglaries to eventually the kidnapping, and I think this is the last step before he commits a rape. This is sort of the final step where he's kidnapped someone and touched them, and the next step will be rape, and then it'll keep going from there. But, when, but there's something in this where the inadequacy of his being is, is, is it's like a vessel that for a moment is filled because he finally gets to be someone who he can't really be a normal human, but in those moments, he can be a God. He can be, he can have total control of the situation, dictatorial control. You know, most dictators are very, not simultaneously very grandiose and in a sense insecure people. And and in, in that moment, he's, in a sense, he feels himself to be, in a sense, whole because he is not inadequate to, to life as a human being, but he is, in that, in that moment, the driver of the action, the determiner of the action. So, so there's, and, like, something missing, almost, from him. Yeah, there's something missing, and there's something that, in the case of sadistic violence... There's a broken, often a broken ego. And when you do this act of violence, you take another person, you externalize your own brokenness and you take another person. And for a moment, they become the broken, inadequate person. And the sadist becomes suddenly and for a moment, powerful, in total control, and therefore adequate, and therefore a filled vessel rather than an empty vessel. And I think there's something, it's obviously a sexual drive too, but I think there's something very deeply, it's like everything comes together. And that's something that I think that he doesn't, that there's no substitute for that. And on top of that, it is a sexual drive. And that is one of the, the, the along with the drive for food, the reaction to danger. I mean, these are these are the most powerful drives that people have, and there. And of course, he doesn't really, beyond his his fulfilling his fantasies, doesn't really care about his own survival. 
uh, as we say when he is uh, when he is uh, charged with murder. Whereas some others who have more of a narcissistic grandiosity to them, they will from the from the moment before they are executed, they will think they can find some way out of it. They think that they that continue to keep playing that game. But uh, he didn't have that quality. And, and so he just keeps progressing on from this. And at this point, he's, you said he's 17. He's abducted a woman, Nor- Noreen Laurel. Kept her, he, did, he did keep her for a while in, in, in that candy, you know, not for like a day, I think it was. And there's an aspect to it. You know, he's, he's drawing it out. He wants her to be afraid. He wants her to show that fear. And, you know, when you have that total control that he wanted, you don't want to just that to be five minutes. You, you, you know, he's not at the point where he's committing rape yet, but he, ha- he has this woman under his control and then takes her back home. And, you know, you think that maybe at that point it was just because he didn't have the courage, shall we say, if you want to use that word, to continue and go farther. But also I think that there's something where he did what he wanted to do and it satisfied him for the moment. And letting her go was all, was part of the, the story he'd written. I mean, he, he'd done what he needed to do, and that's part of his control as well. A creature of pure evil, as we... <laughs> and it's funny, and it's, it's worth noting that, that cats have all the qualities that we think are detestable and dangerous and vile about people, but of course, that's just who they are. It's not their fault. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and That's why they they're so attractive. Uh, they're, 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 I, I think that, you know, they're independent, they're funny, they're, uh, some of them are very cute, some of them are very majestic, uh, but it doesn't make as much sense to, to be into cats on an objective sense as it would be to be into dogs. Dogs have all these qualities that, that uh, you know, they're, they're so loyal, they're, they're, they're so empathetic, and, but cats represent a kind of an independence and a strength that within some level so it can, be, it can be good. It's just... If you're independent of, you know, your own, your own race, so to speak, it's not good. If, ca- if a cats didn't have, didn't enjoy being around each other, we'd see them as being unnatural. <laughs> they were, you know, but whereas if they're, but they're all that way, that's just who, how they are. If everyone was like Harvey Glatton, and maybe one time everyone was to a degree in their, in our caveman past, but and it wouldn't be as, it wouldn't stand out in, in, in the way it does. And, um, you know, I think we get to this point where it says that he was diagnosed with uh, schizophrenia. Now, it's important to know this was 1945 in which he was diagnosed with schizophrenia. I was from my mom's childhood in, you know, the 50s and 60s. They threw that label around, you know, you know, you know, at one point, you know, someone just met with her and thought she was, you know, she had, she had no, no uh, psychotic qualities whatsoever but she was just didn't pay attention in class so it's it's this was a term that was used i think a little bit too broadly and i think what was being referred to that point was that he he was a little strange and that and and he wasn't social father and mother were obviously very scared uh, about what what had happened with the the series of attacks and and they had gone to dr Hilton, who diagnosed Gottman with schizophrenia, poses you know illogical thought patterns, delusions, hallucinations, accompanying with very various degrees of emotional, behavioral, 
or intellectual disturbances. That's the kind of thing that was being fed into Harvey at the time. But this was one of a number, actually, of psychoanalysis that Harvey Gottman was put under. So when, when Harvey Gottman actually went to prison, he met a different doctor, and a different doctor gave a completely different diagnosis to what he, he supposed Harvey Gottman actually had. Well, once again, not uncommon for the time. It's certainly not uncommon until very recently. A uh, generation later, you have criminals who were diagnosed that way as well, and I'm not sure it was accurate. I think in some cases, you have these umbrella, the you know schizoid, schizotypal personalities, and these are people who are either asocial or strange in their thinking, or in the case of schizotypal personalities, they have hallucinations. In the case of schizoid, they tend to have strange or illogical thought patterns. It, it, although I am not a clinician, I'm so don't quote me on that officially. You're not a clinician. You know, I'm not. <laughs> I'm, uh, I'm, uh, but, but so, so neither of us are um, a mental health clinicians. That should be absolutely a label on the, you know, just a, uh, but uh, <clears throat> just a proviso for both of us. But I think, I think in some cases people were diagnosed with that. And actually what it was is they were extremely paranoid because they were extremely narcissistic and had this, you know, and that caused the paranoia. In his case, I don't think that was the case. He's not narcissistic. But he isn't, I think what they were describing is that he has no inclination towards being social. And this is, once again, very different from autism, because in the case of, of uh, or at least high-functioning autism, this is Asperger's, because in the case of something like that, people have an inclination to be social. They just don't have the skill and don't pick up on the signals. But there's never any point in Harvey Glattman's life where he seems like someone who is at all inclined to social to sociality. He has a desire for sex, a desire for control, but that doesn't require women to be anything other than a facet of his fantasy, an object. And and in this case, I think something that allows him to to not be adequate for for, for particular moments and allows him to direct hostility elsewhere. I don't. Th I don't think. I don't think you could really describe him as schizophrenic. Certainly. Uh, now he may have. Now it is possible that a schizoid or schizotypal diagnosis would be accurate. But I. I there, there, it must be said there is within the clinical world some a measure of, con of controversy about personality disorders to begin with. I, I know I, I had a psychologist who was unsure about that. When you're talking about something like a psychopathy, you are still talking about a, a neurological profile. You can see in certain pictures, but you also don't know where it comes from. And he was diagnosed later on as psychopathic or antisocial, which is a more umbrella term, schizophrenic type, which I think just means not social and strange. And then later, I think, was simply diagnosed as having, you know, you know, I think what they say, psychoneurosis or anxiety type of depression, no evidence of schizophrenia. But he doesn't have like obsessive compulsive disorder or something like that. He has deeply rooted psychological problems. And these are, and so sometimes you would put a personality disorder label on that. And other times you describe it within the language of a mental disorder. But I think when you, when you see that never in his life has he had an inclination towards sociality, but instead towards this alternate fantasy life, which 
His normal sexuality doesn't develop. It goes into that altered fantasy life. His social life goes into that altered fantasy life. And that that is something that is often put under the label of a schizoid personality or a schizoid psychopathic personality. Those are the labels. But I think one of the things that is fascinating and disturbing about this guy, and you know, as you'll see with some others, but not most, is that how early this all presents from the age of three, playing around with ropes in a sexual way. That's, you know, I don't know what you were doing when, when you were three, but <laughs> I, my mom uh, nursed me until I was a little past the age. It certainly didn't start at three for me. Early, yeah, but not I mean, that. Yeah, I mean, and, you know, sometimes people do have, but the thing is that sometimes people have an early sexuality, which is normal. Like maybe a boy is sexually starting to get uh, sexually developed at, at eight or nine, but in a normal way. But what I think is, is that he has this alternate psychodevelopment where his sexuality gets channeled into that, into this whole obsession with ropes and with total control of the environment. And if you can't make yourself an adequate person, if you can't make your internal environment adequate, the desire to control everything outside of yourself through these intermediary functions like the ropes, through breaking into people's houses through eventually kidnapping women and then moving on to rape and eventually murder. And so at this point, he's in 1946. He, this is the thing that really shocked me. He, uh, he, uh, uh, he, he attacked a couple, Thomas Starro and Doris Thorne. This is something that you see the Zodiac killer did this. And, but the Zodiac killer was a totally different type of person. He was playing games with the cops. He had a, he had a costume. He was a really good shot, military training, probably. This is not something you'd expect from Harvey Glattman. And I think what it was is that... than Harvey Glattman, and, and, you know, in retrospect, you know, like, like you say... Oh, yeah, I know. There is something... The, the, it, must be said, you know. it must be said that the Zodiac Killers, the symbol he used, the costume, it was pretty cool. I mean, and that motherfucker didn't get who, caught. Didn't get caught. Nope. Nope. They still they're still trying to they're still trying to uh to solve the uh was it the code that he you know every I think last year someone said they solved it and and they knew who he was but I think it turned out to just be bullshit. You know, I it, it's it, it, there is there is a it must be said like people can pretend that smoking doesn't look cool but it does even if it's bad for you. There are certain figures in the history of crime We'll touch at some point on Carl Pan's rim uh, and a few others. Zodiac might have been able to break Enigma, but Gottman, if he had been okay, he might have been a teacher or something. I don't know, you know. Yeah, I mean, and 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 you do have that sense. You can, you know, you look at people, and you know, they have abilities. He had abilities. There are some, and and, and it's it's thought that Zodiac was someone who was a high IQ, but did not had not achieved any professional success. And wanted to play this sort of game, but he had and he had a level of skill and 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 a level of it must be said sartorial style with his, <laughs> with his symbol and and there was something cool. I mean, there was something about him that was cool in, in the way he presented himself that did fascinate the public. Obviously, one of the reasons Harvey Glattman is not as well known is because he 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 did not fascinate the public, and he wasn't someone who um, I mean he was he was lured but in a kind of a banal sense. And it's, it's relevant now because we see now that he was indeed a prototype for the types of killers that would, that would pro proliferate in the 70s and 80s. But 
if you look at the 1950s, it's worth noting that both now in retrospect, but also at the time, the figure that fascinated everyone in crime was Ed Gein, who is, if you've seen Psycho, Silence of the Lambs, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, all have characters inspired by him. And he is a strange, he was a strange, similarly kind of, I think he might have been schizophrenic, a strange psychotic man who lived in this big country house. He had this domineering mother who died and eventually it was just him. And he made all manner of macabre ornaments out, out of the bodies of people, largely dug up from graves. He killed two women. And I'm not sure he counts as a serial killer in that sense. But the thing was, is that he inspired the idea of this dark farmhouse, we'll know, or the idea of the strange farmer who makes things out of chandeliers, out of bones, all those other stuff, keeps body parts. He, that inspired uh, basically modern horror. And at the time, it was seen as so strange and so crazy in the 50s. But in actuality, he was an aberration. He was kind of more of the type of strange, crazy guy that you might have seen when we look at the people who thought they were uh, werewolves or, or actual wolves, someone who was genuinely a little bit, more than a little bit crazy. And uh, Yeah, Altman almost seems a little provincial and parochial in comparison. But moving on right. a little, little bit. Gottman actually he, he manages to, to get out of prison <clears throat> on a technicality so the Sixth, sixth Amendment allows for a speedy trial to criminal defendants but however the defense there was a request to defense uh, while they pursue new evidence uh, to consult experts and so on and so but and that allows for when there is a def there, where there is a defense to consult experts but because of the delay of the trial, which violated Gottman's speedy uh, trial provision, the judge, Fio Leo, um, actually had to throw the case out. And Gottman had spent uh, several years behind bars, but because of that, he was paroled, paroled on two conditions. Uh, one of the conditions was that he saw uh you know a parole officer and the other condition was obviously to re-engage with a different psychiatrist which is dr ubar and dr ubar which is in in contradiction to the the original doctor dr hilton dr ubar concluded that, that harvey gottman was a secondary psychopath yeah and and i think it's it's it, it one of the things that you can see with this is that there this is documented there this did not come out of nowhere not only did he have this pattern of escalation, there were repeated attempts to, for the, by both his family and by the mental uh, health and law enforcement world to come to grips with him, to, to, to try to deal with him. But like in many other cases, certain things fell through. He fell through the cracks. But it wasn't something that, that uh, came out of nowhere. Uh, this was something that was brewing. And I think everyone knew it, but they didn't know what to do about it and, and Certain things legally fell through the crack, as is often the case. Like when we get to uh, to John Gacy, how he he certain things are, are not followed up on, so he gets out of jail at a particular time when he shouldn't have, or things like that. In this case, that that seems to be the case. The second, it is worth pointing out the difference between these these clinical diagnoses. The uh, now they just use in um, antisocial personality disorder, which is an umbrella term. But I I think I have critiques of it, even though. You know, you know, I'm not a clinician, but I have critiques of it. I think it's 
a term like antisocial personality, an umbrella term, which mainly describes, you know, breaking society's laws and mores. It could it could be applied to a, you know, to a. It could have been applied using the way they do it now to Nelson Mandela or William Wallace, you know, because they were fighting the government. It's it's <laughs> it's, it's I don't I think it's a, an inadequate term when you're talking about someone's psychological or neurological disturbances. It just sort of looks at the effects and see. And you can measure what someone does and what that means. So it's easier. But uh, psych, uh, but I think that psychopathy is more useful because it, 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 it talks more about an essential problem with someone's being, someone's psyche, someone's neurological profile. And for what it's worth, the, the, in general, when they talk about primary psychopathy, you're talking about someone who is very much like someone like Ted Bundy, who is, if they were to be given the hair psychopathy checklist, that's something invented by Robert Hare, a psychologist in Canada, zero to 40 scale, Ted Bundy scored a 39, one of the highest scores of all time. I suspect Harvey Gladwin would be maybe about 10 points lower than that. I think when you're looking at a, a primary psychopath, that is, the, that is the clear determining quality to their being. Whereas when you talk about someone with a secondary psychopathy, there are other things going on. Um, whether you're talking about a schizoid personality or some or some other thing, and also the other difference is, is that when you're talking about a primary psycho psychopath, you're talking about someone who probably is more likely pro-social, highly controlled, less impulsive. At different times, people have used the term sociopath, and what that refers to is an era of clinical research where it was generally viewed that, you know, looking at things from, from the development of external cause, looking at things that people who are not, not from the development of uh, not internal, like their, their brain structure or their uh, early psychology, but the idea, you know, more looking at a, what you would call control theory in sociology, the, the uh, you know, the idea of people being uh, made that way socially, as opposed to being born that way or having very basic psychological or neurological development very early on that, that was causing that. It was a different way of looking at criminality, actually, more than anything else, where, 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 where a sociopath went out of fashion when they started looking at people's brains and trying to understand why people would develop early on. And, but in general, when you, look at, when you look about, say, a, comparing a psychopath and a sociopath or a category one to a secondary psychopath, it's sort of like the difference between someone like Ted Bundy and someone like Tony Soprano. Uh, the fictional character, or you want to do is a, fic a fictional comparison to Tony Soprano that's more in someone like Iago from Othello is a primary psychopath. And Tony Soprano, you think of him as violent and a little bit impulsive and has no problem committing violence, but he has family connections. He has friendships. If someone like Tony Soprano was a primary psychopath, he'd have no negative feeling about when they had to whack uh, Big Pussy. But, and I don't know if uh, Gladwin would have cared if he was in that position, but I think he's described as a secondary psychopath because he has other comorbidities. He has, he's, he doesn't, he, he isn't totally cold and totally confident. He has, you know, he reacts viscerally to his crimes, some level of guilt, some level of, re of physical revulsion. So he, there is a, a level to which uh, he's, he's a, uh, a more minor version of that condition. Whereas I think if, if you'd be diagnosed as a primary psychopath, if he, if he had absolutely no 
reaction to having raped or killed someone, absolutely no guilt or hesitation. And uh, I think you do, you, we will get to some of those characters, but that was, I think the most more accurate depiction of who he was that he, that he is, uh, you know, a secondary psychopathic personality with whatever, whatever, however you would describe accounts for his total lack of interest or investment in being part of the human race because primary psychopaths don't have any more of an interest in it, but they have an interest in creating a narrative where they do, and they have an interest in how society sees them. And well, I don't what think would you think about the doctor's uh, assessment that Gartman, uh, you know, like this is sort of the in internals of this, you know, like some of the, because you, because you compare them to, 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 to Tony Soprano, um, but some of the kind of like, well, Gartman is a guy who, who the the doctor Doctor Ubar thought you know he he has this idea that he 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 wants to be successful, uh, he has this you know deep seated inadequacy, but he doesn't work hard. And Gartman is someone also who externalizes criticism from other people or or externalizes his own failures, saying that you know they're other people's faults. Yeah, or, uh, and well, also someone yeah. who 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 who's not pro-social, but associates with people who are social misfits or people who are low status and, and things like that. What, what do you think about those things? Because you know Harvey Gartman may have possessed those things, but they are there. There are feelings and psychological profiles and positions that uh, many you know sort of normal people also possess. Yeah, I mean, one of the things you see is is that it's sort of like how he has a normal intelligence in some ways. Other things are totally missing. There are elements of his human experience that are explicable to normal people. It's just that it's it's filtered through this other this other kind of gaping hole where certain things should be. And um, by the way, I, I don't. Uh, to be clear, I don't think he's at all similar to Tony Soprano. I was using that as to say. The difference between, say, a primary psychopath, like in real life, or like Ted Bundy, or uh, and and say a what what used to be called a sociopath, uh, or or but often sometimes called a secondary psychopath, which but they're different personalities. Obviously, Tony Soprano is a has the personality of a leader, and he is social. Is what I meant is simply that the a primary and secondary psychopathy diagnoses are in some ways analogous to the difference between what people you say the difference between a psychopath and a sociopath, although that might not entirely bring true. I think, I think it, I wasn't meaning that he was similar personally, but the thing you do see in what a primary psychopath, they'd be more likely to be able to restrain themselves for their own self-preservation. And in general, when you see people who are more purely psychopathic, they are more narcissistic they are more interested in, in, in uh, dominance within society, or at least having this public face, because that's part of the game. I, 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 think, I think what it is, is, is that he, he doesn't, is that he is impulsive and does things that are, for the purpose of his survival, stupid. And part of it is I think he doesn't have the executive function that maybe some other predatory people have. But part of it also is he really, he does seem to have a bit of what, you know, Freud would call the death drive. He does seem to have 
he doesn't seem to have a desire to, to, to either achieve those moments of adequacy when he has control of someone else, an object of his desire, or to, to negate himself entirely. And that, that, that anything other than those two things is, is, is inferior to either of those two things. If he's, if he's just impulsive and out of control, or if he just really doesn't care, or if it's a mix of both. So, Gottman, uh, he's released from prison. You know, he has some parole restrictions. He's living at home. Uh, he, he, sort of, he worked on and off as a radio and television repairman, picking up odd jobs. But he mostly let his, you know, indulgent mother support him at the time, you know. Also at this time, he's more sort of explicitly engaging in this, in this, in the pornography, but also of a pornography that, that has a higher level of, you know, explicit bondage. Uh, and and uh, so this kind of intense relationship with that kind of literature at the time, which for, you know, for some other people might be, less worrying but this yeah. is this is the way uh this is the way he was living he's obsessed with this the sequence of shapely blondes brunettes redheads bras the bizarre positions the spanking wrestling you know he's, he's indulging in this kind of new sort of the, the bubblings of a of a kind of uh of a sexual paradigm that's, that's changing in the in the culture at the time and he's living with his parents but he's also but he, he he's he's also dreaming at this time of moving to Los Angeles. Yeah, I mean, I I wonder what the direct relationship to that is because he's someone who, as similar men would be a generation later, but he's someone who is very influenced by these detective magazines, and most of those, like most you think of hard-boiled noir, takes place in Los Angeles. But specifically, it is important to note that because detective magazines play such a big role, and not just in the story of Harvey Gladman, but in the entire panorama that we're going to be covering in this series, it's not the stories or the characters, it's specifically the images on the covers. And he would go on later to sort of recreate these. But I think at this point, when you're looking at the, you know, at this point, it's in the 1940s still, I, I suspect that these are not as visible as they might have been in the 50s and 60s. From what I've read, Glattman would get them. I think he had catalogs. He would, he had to order them. Maybe he had to go out of the way to find them. And they were still, they were certainly a major, as we see when he gets to Los Angeles, a major part of the culture. They were not fringe exactly, but they may have appeared to be fringe. They may have been something like, in, in, in any interest in any particular genre is, appears to be fringe, but actually has a huge uh, following. But I think what it is, is that, yeah, I mean, he, he's escalating in his actions, but also in his interest in this type of pornography and erotica. And it, it is worth noting, as uh, you know, as you hinted, you know, there's a lot of people who are into, you know, some level of bondage or into some level of games and sexuality where the motivation is entirely different. The limits are entirely there where it's, 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 it, it is just fairly you know, innocent play between consenting individuals and between individuals who are not going to escalate further, and that it is not with the motivation of seeing someone in distress or, seeing someone, or, or causing someone suffering, in the case as it was with Harvey Gladman. 
there is no li- there are no limits with him because he has been building all this time. He's been getting rid of all the limits, and he doesn't have a- any natural inclination towards prioritizing the social, you know, any real feeling for other people. So, so but this is. This is this is going on a track with the rest of his uh, the the deviations of his actions is also he's inspired by these detective magazines and by the covers where you would have a woman tied up with a man looming in, you know, sometimes in the in the shadows or, you know, and what's strange is is in many cases, this was the villain, you know, and the detective would go find it. But the message that was getting through to people like Harvey Glattman was this is a powerful male figure, not just tied up and it is mercy, but it's the expression of terror. And that was something that really, really uh, fused with his sexuality in a way that is that does uh, happen with other sadistic offenders. The thing about sexual sadism is that it is not about how much pain you can cause someone. It's about what reactions you can provoke in them. It's about controlling and provoking their distress, their anger, their level of suffering as a way to become godlike. That's what it really is about. It's, it's not just about, it's a distinction that might seem morbid or strange to people, but it's a, it's a clear distinction between causing someone pain, which can be done in any way. We've had, you know, uh, torture is a part of state executions and part of tactics used by the military to extract. In, in, in this case, it's about, it's about con, you know, the control. It's about um, provoking a particular response. If you cause someone pain and they don't respond a certain way, that's not going to get these people off or make them feel better about themselves or whatever. And it's the expression of fear and terror in the eyes of in the face of, of a woman on the, on these covers that I think is what it, you know, is what really fused with the, with these fantasies of control, sadistic brutality. But so I think, I think you probably one of the reasons he goes out to LA is in part because he's inspired by these detective magazines. This is still in many ways, a J, it's, it's the 1940s. September the 7th, 1956, uh, Gottman completed his term of parole and was completely free of supervision because if you if you violate parole if you have supervision there's always the chance that that you can you know all that could be revoked and in general once one thing you often see with the with 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 serial killers is once they're the main obstacles to their inclinations are removed they go whole hog into it and so at this point he he, he was on parole for quite some time in denver right was on parole in Denver for, for, for quite a while. You know, he, the, the judge allowed him to go back to Denver and deliver with his parents. But uh, one of the pr- provisions was that he's going to be on parole for quite a while. And then eventually the parole ended, the supervision ended. And, you know, he had been a, a reasonably decent in- inmate in terms of... And, he's uh, kind of a meek, diffident, you know. Yeah. <laughs> he's, he's, you know, he's... <laughs> and, and, and you know what? I will. I will say this: He's not as well known, obviously, as iconic as some figures. But there's aspects to his personality. People, he seems like kind of what people—the archetypal creepy loner, you know, that kind of that kind of person. Uh, the idea of you know, he he goes on to you know to be known as much for photography 
as as for his as for his use of ropes. And certainly there's been, you know, popular novels where the killer is in a dark room. That's a common thing. And, and Harvey Gladman would develop photos in a dark room. Um, another thing here that happens here is in 1952, his father dies. And he might have seen his father's a little bit strict, but that's also another figure who's kind of another pot potential agent of external control. That Yeah, it's away. another layer, you know, that's removed. And in 1956, his final diagnosis, psychopathic personality, schizophrenic type with the asocial thing again, being odd, having sexually perverted impulses as the basis of his criminality. And, and, and as I said, I think that it goes deeper than sex, but that is how that's the vehicle and the certainly the driving force for the for the criminality. So he, uh, and, you know, and now he's in 1957. He he goes to Los Angeles. He's in the clear legally. He can start over. And this is you know for him the mecca of you know beautiful, voluptuous, socially sophisticated women. You know this is this. It's where. Uh, he's been wanting to go to where the the magazines have been pointing it to him to he's almost like the girls themselves you know yeah yeah and, and, and the, at the most basic level of nature mm. predators an ecosystem creates its own predators there's a reason why so many serial killers who target both girls and boys men and women you know have flocked to California, Los Angeles in particular. There's the exact, there's the exact pool of prey for their particular needs and desires. And he certainly, LA is certainly where if you want to, if you want to go meet these young models who are looking to have a career, uh, that is a place to go. And what I think you find, though, is, and this is always the, the, the story with Los Angeles, is the city of dreams and, and, and on, you know, on celluloid. But it's also, you know, most people go out to L.A. and they don't make it and they hang around for a while or they make it and then they get old and they hang around for a while. It's it's not it's it's not, you know, it's a it's a city of you know scrubs as much as stars. And all the people that he would go to find are, were people who were kind of either on the disadvantage you know, the level of disadvantage, they were desperate or they maybe didn't have enough sense to yet to, uh, to, to um, trust the instinct of them that said, don't go with this guy. Uh, because it wasn't like he was preying on women who had made it and who knew their way around the business to the extent where they could tell who was legit and who wasn't. I mean, there are very few I mean, uh, Harvey used the, the uh, ruse of being a professional photographer. He had various uh, aliases. Johnny Glenn was one. He had a couple others. Um, but what people now know is that when a, someone comes out of the blue and says they're a photographer and they're trying to photograph you, that is a very dangerous thing. And I've heard there are some models now who will only go with someone like that if they have bring friends or they will make sure they do background on that person. And, but at that time, that wasn't really. It'd just be Instagram, wouldn't it? You know? Yeah. I mean, well, it, right. And, 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 and later generations, you'd have one person after another, Christopher Wilder, Leonard Lake, the uh, Kenneth Bianca, one of the Hillside Stranglers, all these different people, the list could go on and on who used uh, uh, photography as a way to lure women. Uh, and who, and, and it wasn't just, 
that it's there's something very powerful about the photography. If you particularly if you have this 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 deviant out of control interest in in pornography, there's something about the interest in the photography, and then I think that goes beyond just whatever arousals provoked by pictures. I think it's also that when you take a picture, you have you've have this moment forever preserved of control where, and, and, and when you, and a lot of these killers, they keep these pictures to use, you know, as pornography, but also like trophies. This is their, their moments of conquest, their moments of where they, they were able to, uh, to, to complete a a fantasy and it's preserved forever. And, and they take the, the and, and them being the holders of the camera, the directors of the camera, they are the ones who are uh, dictating the control in that instance. And it's forever preserved. It's, it, it's, it's more literal than a memory. And I think that, 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 that that's a big part of it is, is they want the picture to return to for sexual gratification, but they also want to have that proof that of, of their conquest. And so he's in, in 1957, he's in LA. And I think he worked some very, you know, he was like a TV repairman or something like that. Worked a TV set. I mean, uh, one thing that's pretty consistent with this type of offender is interesting is that pretty much mo- nearly all are mechanically inclined. Some are mechanically excellent. And uh, it's, a, it's a strange pattern. And in, and in this case, we know Harvey Gladman was uh, in some ways very intelligent and very capable with his hands as well. But, uh, but he, so he, he has this, this idea, he has these various aliases and he's posing as a photographer uh, and looking for, for, for young models. And his first, it's worth, once again, it's worth returning to the fact that he is suspected in, in, in the murder of one woman, Dorothy Howard, before he left Colorado. And it's very likely he, he, he's guilty of that one. So he may have already crossed the Rubicon into rape and murder by this point. But just before, you we go into this is an aside yeah you know just before we go into the murders this is an aside but he's hanging around these uh la studios he's getting interested in photography you know he's starting to tell people that he's you know he came to la to train as a photographer part-time but he does encounter uh, some women who are models who and he he's He's trying to, again, like you said, you know, he's trying iteratively to cross another line and he goes and he, and he, and he takes them on a date, but he's perturbed by the fact that actually they want to have sex with him. Right. And so, so those situations were, don't turn into, you know, into murders. They don't go that, that far. They, they don't go to the, to the next because he doesn't know what to do in that situation. Right. So, so there were some women who were not, who were not either re- repulsed by him uh, or, or getting any danger signals, but actually were open to a relationship. I think at that point, it's because he doesn't have that inclination to human intimacy. He, he, and he doesn't have any actual courage or, or um, it, it, in built-in actual confidence because if he did he wouldn't want total control he wants this narr- he wants the control but he but any actual relationship with a woman would be a would be uh would not in, it would be a give and take it'd be vulnerable it would be human relationships 
And, and that's not something that he understands or is inclined to. And uh, so, yeah. And, and, and also the other thing about it is, as you say, he has this resentment towards women. So if a woman is not fill, filling that, and he's totally bought into this narrative that, that women are above and outside. I mean, you see this same thing with Edmund Kemper when we get to him, you know, that this idea that, that women and men exist on different planes and you have to kind of, you can't interact with them as you would with others, as you would with a man. So maybe, so yeah, he, it, that doesn't fit his narrative. Uh, Dr. Ubar also said that in the, in the psychological analysis that he was someone who would have difficulty staying with one love, he described as a love object, you know, uh, over a long period of time. Right. I mean, I, I mean, well, it's, it's, it, I think that, you know, what he wants is not something that, is, that you could preserve particularly well. And, you know, very much like in the case of Jeffrey Dahmer, he, would, he had a mannequin that he kept with him <laughs> for a while because that was, he'd rather have a mannequin than have an independent, interacting, self-determining uh, partner. And I don't think Harvey Glattman would be satisfied with that because he's uh, a sadist and he needs particular reactions on the part of the victim. And Dahmer didn't even care about that. Uh, but, I think, but I think that there are some people who are like this who do maintain a relationship with a woman, but it doesn't last because their demands should escalate and, and to the point where being with them is intolerable and to the point where there's nothing that, this, that their partner can do that will satisfy what they want at that point. Um, and at that point, you either, that point, it, it, it lends itself towards just going full whole hog into criminality and, and enacting these fantasies in a way that doesn't involve any other uh, determination other than one's own. And if you had a woman who actually was open to him, that doesn't fit within this psychodrama at all. And, you know, it, it, it's not it, he. He wants control, and uh, he wants to, he wants to be the total dictator of the action, and that can't happen in a normal relationship. So and, at this uh, point, the paraphernalia <clears throat> builds up. You know, that's it's all been building up. He's collecting five hundred dollars worth of bondage and to torture f photos and cartoons. He's got his film. He's got his gags. He's got his rope. Uh, he's calling freelance models who have, you know, provocative ads in the papers. The 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 figure of Harvey Gartman that that would be embalmed in celluloid canvas for 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 all time has emerged, heads himself, and he's ready for the his primary acts is these these murders. He's he's crossed all the other he's he's walked all the other steps he's crossed all the other barriers he's built up his capability and his inclinations to that level you know whatever however however he was made by nature in this malformed manner whether psychopathic asocial schizoid whatever he's also through his actions he's brought himself to this point however they were decided on or motivated or caused and. Uh, I think his, his first victim is a girl named Judy Dull, who was, I think, 19 years old. Do you want to talk about her? Uh, so uh, initially, 
he had gone to Judy's house uh, looking for her model and uh, looking for her. And he met her friend who says that uh, Judy was, was out, but he was aroused by the pictures that were around that her, fre- his, his, her friend showed Harvey. Again, her, fre- her friend seemed to feel that Harvey was a little bit of a, of a creep. Uh, she got a, a bad vibe for, for, from him, which would, you know, something that would obviously continue. And then Harvey eventually calls her while uh, Judy is at lunch with her, her roommates. And eventually he's able to get her to come on a, a photo shoot with, with him. So Harvey told Judy that uh, he had come to California to break into the photography business. Uh, uh, you know, they, they, they get into a car together, they drive. He claimed to be going to the other studio, but instead goes to own home. He, once he's at his home, he, he tells her that he's shooting covers for a true detective magazine and he was going to need to tie her up, gag her, and pose her in various stages of the disheveled clothing, gradually hiking up her her skirts. And this was, was, if if I recall, what he did with a lot of these women, it wasn't something that they were unprepared for until he became violent. I mean, it tells you how common this was. Uh, Because you had models pose for these detective things. You, You probably had a lot of legitimate photographers who were appealing to that, isn't it true that, that in, in some of the cases of these women who had become his victims, that they were not, they, 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 this was not something they'd not heard about before? It was not something that they thought that, I mean, this was something that was not uncommon if you were someone who posed for erotically changed photography in Los Angeles at the time. No, absolutely. And, and, it's, and it's, it really seemed. And and you, you get to this with, with 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 later women who you know in the preamble, they seem to be doing the work and they 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 know they they seen the scenes before they heard about it. But even between Judy herself and Beth Carver, who was her friend, you know the the the, the particular conversations you know aren't uh, that well known. But Beth had seen a man that she thought was creepy and gave her cre- creepy vibes. She lived in a ho- home with with other other models. She had a conversation with Judy about this man, but Judy eventually decides to go with this man. Judy had been separated for, from her husband Robert uh, since the second of June. He had been actually a press man at the LA Times, and he didn't mind her modeling, but he drew the line at posing nude for to- total strangers. So again, this idea of posing nude. The yeah. studios with to- total strangers was something that's, that's well known. But she was sort of motivated by a desperate. I think she wanted to prove that she had enough financial viability to have custody of her child. Is that what it was? Because they, they had a custody dispute. Yeah, there was a custody dispute over her child, uh, Suzanne, who was then uh, 14 months old. And, uh, you know, Robert, who was just trying to claim that you know, she wasn't a, a model, you know, that she was just, a, she was a stripper and she was trying to denigrate Judy in the eyes of the authorities in, in order to 
sever her relationship with her her daughter. I mean, this is this is. Uh, I don't think Judith Dahl was not. I, I think a timid person. I think she was. She was someone who was fighting uh, at, to 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 try to keep her daughter, and I think she was just desperate. If she hadn't been as desperate, perhaps she would have not been willing to go with Harvey Gladman. So I, I, I think it would be wrong, it would be incorrect to, to characterize her as someone who was easily pushed around. I think in, in, in a lot of these cases, they're just people who are, have some precarity in their life economically or, or they're desperate to keep their, their children. So they, they take risks they might not otherwise do. And of course, I think what you see with, a, with in each of these murders that he commits, he's going to be convicted for three. And if there's a fourth that doesn't, that, that who survives uh, in Los Angeles is that the whole process is he's not just controlling the photography. He he's controlling everything up to that point. He's got this ruse to lure them to the wrong, wrong place. He's drawing that out. He's extending his, his, his control through deceit, through manipulation. And I think that's part of his game. I think it's part of his fantasy. And uh, and then at a certain point when he's he's filming her, you know, it goes from it being a, a fairly you know normal and expected photo shoot to where he springs it on her that he has a gun, and that he's going to take this farther. So he he's te- it tells her that he was going to keep her for a while to have some fun with her, and as she's getting. Uh, and he recounts this, you know, when he's talking to the police officers, as she's getting more scared, becoming more uncomfortable, his arousal uh, is growing in the situation. Because, you know, the, the more scared she is, the more it proves his power, the more it proves his effectiveness in provoking the response. In a later episode, we'll get to a guy who uh, is also lesser well-known than he maybe should be, who is a fellow sadistic killer who wrote what's described as a manifesto that lays this out in chilling detail. And you see this, but you're seeing this yes, in its kind of almost embryonic stages with Harvey Gladman. And he's, the, he's a fledgling example of this type of person. And what he wants is he wants to provoke that fear because then that makes him consequential. He's not consequential. His life isn't consequential. His personality is inadequate, but he is doing something of consequence now but he's he, he is provoking this response of fear and he is and he is now in control the ritualistic virtuosity of it he he bounds and gags her with rope and then he releases her and then he rapes her and this is finally he's been able to reach this limit the, the the limit of his fantasies and uh, and he he's violated this person because of the you know the systemic issues that he's had basically since almost like he was born yeah and and this is the you know the almost like the apogee of it all it him. is and and you know it and it does it does give him this 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 energy that even he thought he didn't have. And in, in the descriptions, he, he, he raped some of the women, I don't know if in the case of Judy Dahl, but he, some of the women multiple times in a way that surprised even himself, he gets this terrible preternatural energy out of it. 
And it, it, I, I, he does say when he is arrested that he did not have any desire to kill them. That was not part of his fantasy. I don't entirely believe that. I think it may have started out that way. I think that certainly that was not his primary goal. His primary goal was to control and dictate this, this terror in his women and, and, and tie them up and, and photograph them. But it is telling that he threatens them with a gun, and, but he kills them with the rope. And that, to me, suggests that the murder is the coup de grace. It is the, the, the finale that needs to be done with the rope because that is more intimate and more controlling and because it involves the, all the things he's been doing with, with rope since he was barely able to walk. It, it, is, it is not incidental. Now, it's entirely possible that it's something that was not part of his fantasy at first. You see this with other serial murderers who, who, st who start at rape or start at something, and th th these other things just seem to develop, and they, they, they start as a just you know, what's called a forensic countermeasure. You know, you have to get rid of the evidence or whatever. Become a part of the fantasy over time. They, they become the coda to the story that they're writing. And so I think at a certain I think at a certain point it did become part of his fantasy just because he killed these women in the same way every time he could have killed them quicker with a gun, but it also might he also might have missed he also they also might have got away and I and so there could be a, a, a horribly practical part of that too. But he wasn't a particularly large or strong man, it, you know. It, it was a you know a, anyone who's being strangled is going to fight really hard. It doesn't it's not easy on, on the level of. Uh, physical exertion it's it's uh so you know he, he um but he does he does kill judith dull by eventually by strangling her uh after he has violated her after he has terrorized her they're there in you know in the room together it's happened he's goldman has never killed anyone before and and she but, tries to she starts to divulge about her life and the fact that you know she doesn't want anyone to know what happens she talks about her daughter she, and she says that she'll not tell anyone what's happened and he, Goldman thinks to himself well you know maybe this is a possibility because he's never killed anyone before the, the sort of the ritualistic tableau that's going to happen afterwards has never happened before and 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 the the relationship between these two people warms a little bit in this in this space but then Goldman finally realizes that this isn't a possibility so he tells her that he's going to drive and leave her in the desert Goldman he, he and then he drives he drove at random to the desert and parked in a remote dirt road, gathered up a blanket and strands of rope, walked into the desert with her hands bound behind her back, telling her that he wanted to have sex one more time before he let go. He spread the blanket on the ground, laid her on it face down. He tied her handcuffs together with one strand. He then took five foot length of cord, tied it around her ankles, pulled on it hard, bending her legs back at the knee and then quickly wound the other end of the cord around her throat, spring of the tension of her legs they pulled to unbend, tightened the line around her throat. The more she struggled, the more it tightened. As she weakened and stopped struggling, the tension in the bind slackened. 
Gautman drove his knee into Judy's back, pulling hard on the cord to finish her off. He later recalled it took about five to ten minutes before she stopped moving. He said he did not shoot her because it would have been too messy. And he was also worried about leaving ballistic evidence. Yeah, I mean, that, that, that's uh, something you, you do hear. Strangulation is the most common form of, of killing when you look at serial murderers and uh, male serial murderers, certainly. And I think, I think it's, it's the most intimate. It's the most controlling. But it is something, it is, it is a nasty business. It's not, it doesn't, it doesn't, it's not quick. It's not easy physically, and it's, it, it is quite torturous. And certainly when you look at the history of hanging, uh, it, it very much until shortly before Britain eliminated capital punishment, ironically, they had perfected hanging to the point where, you know, they could drop someone. It wouldn't, it would kill them instantly. But hanging and strangling, it takes a long time. And so, you know, it, it's, 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 uh, it, it usually does take in that area of time, because you're also talking about resistance and everything else. And it may have been practically motivated, but I, I don't believe him when he says that it had nothing to do with his fantasy. I think he probably was eventually fused with it as, as that sort of the, the final move. And, um, I oh, know we're, we're going to be able to see this, you know, when, you know, in, in another one of these events, because, you know, it's clear that he's using the gun, to try to get them into a position where he can actually complete his ritual, which is, as you say, it's the, it's the binding, it's the rope, it's the strangulation. It becomes fused into his ritual and, 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 and most certainly becomes a part of the fantasy. Whether or not it was a part of the fantasy pre this situation. Right. Yeah, I think, I think you think that it is. But I, I do think that 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 still there is this vagueness. Yeah. I think I think it may have developed. I think it may have over time, and maybe maybe it wasn't initially. Maybe it was a situation where um, this kind of ha- just happened in this instance, uh, and and it and it was kind of spur of the moment. But it is repeated in every instance because it was effective. In achieving what he wanted to achieve, and and uh, I think he takes the, the, the all his victims out to the desert. They're in the same general area because it's familiar. It's it's out of the way, um, and, uh, and 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 I think it's entirely possible it was something that developed and was not so, and, and and was something that um, that he became acclimated to. He certainly is not someone who for whom uh, killing came as early uh one of the things is is with serial murder in general there are several antecedents you look for and the first is animal uh cruelty i don't recall reading that that exact happened when he was a kid but it very well just might not have been recorded that does prime you to a degree for for murder but it may be simply be that that uh, that the murder was something he did as a way to clean up the situation and finish the situation since the apogee of his fantasy, as you say, was the, the, the photography of the terrified woman that was the rape. It was all those different things, but there's, a, there's also something where, you know, I uh, know this was uh, wrote about probably one of your most infamous in, in the UK killers, Ian Brady, one of the more, the Moore's murders back in the day, 
But he said that the second killing is where you truly cement your your identity as a killer. That you have where I think he said it was where you you put any idea of redemption behind you. Where you where you where the first killing, it, it, you know, the, the second killing is where it becomes easier, where it becomes cemented, where where you are not just an incidental killer anymore. You're, you're someone you know that that is who you are now. And I've heard that echoed by other killers as well. That it's the second one. Uh, not that the first one is not enormously consequential, but in terms of conditioning yourself mentally and psychologically, it's the second one. And we don't know if, if when he killed Judith Dull, if the killing was a part of his fantasy or if it was just spur of the moment. But we do know that he continues to kill. Um, and the second victim... Uh, is where we get the nickname the Lonely Hearts Killer is in one of the nicknames of Harvey Glattman in the press. Yeah. And he meets her through this, but she's the only one, I think. I think all his other victims were met were through the photograph photographing models ruse. And this this is different because this is this is through a this is through a uh a dating service. Yeah, so he he enters uh he first he he moves back to Denver because he's you know he's scared. He's kind of on the lamb, you know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you know, looks into the the newspapers uh, about the killing. They, they, you know, they 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 seem to not have any uh, leads. The descriptions that are being read about him uh, in the paper by uh, Beth Carter and other uh, friends of Judith Dole are, are, are not uh, they're not accurate enough. They you know they don't they don't really lead to. To Gottman, really, and uh, and Gottman, you know, although he's scared, he, he he wants to try to use a different method. So he enters as uh, George Williams uh, into the Lonely Hearts ads, and he says, you know, he's a wealthy uh, plumber who is just looking for you know someone, um, you know, in this in the springtime of his life and all, all and all this and. Um and actually his first, his first time he did actually meet uh, a woman and and um he 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 went to her, her house she was uh, you know she had a child she was a hollywood secretary and uh, and again she seemed to want to have a relationship with him she was quite doting on him and and she, he didn't really like that, and he left, and he never really called her again. But the second person was uh, poor Shirley Ann Bridgeford, who was a 24-year-old divorcee. You know, it's a, she was only 24, but it seemed like the best part of her, her life was already over. She was a, a, a lonely factory worker with, with two kids. Yeah, I mean, it, 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 it's at it, it, that time also, age is reckoned differently from today. You know? Oh, yes. There's a great, there's a great line by the comic uh, Sarah Tiana. She's in L.A. And, and she was talking about coming from the South. And she had talked about being, you know, a woman in, in I think, different parts of her career, late 20s or 30s. And, you know, they said, in parts of the country, that makes me a commodity. In other parts of the country, it makes me a lesbian, being single at that age. <laughs> in, in that era... If you didn't have a reliable income and security from a man, particularly if you were a single mother, even at the age of 24, it's a, it's, it's, it, 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 things aren't looking good. So she would, she, she would, um, 
like Judith Dahl in a different, but in a different way, been a little bit more desperate and a little bit less likely to treat whatever whatever um, doubt she might have had. Because I think I read that she said that she 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 did not find Harvey Gladwell, Shirley Bridgeford did not find Harley Glad personally appealing when she met him. Maybe it had been hope for someone who was a little bit less of a nebbish. And maybe she, 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 he gave off the weird vibes again. I think that, and I think also with someone like Glattman, he doesn't have the skill to construct the sort of the mask of sanity, as they say, that some other psychopaths do, where they are able to keep the parts of them that seem unappealing or dangerous under this facade. He doesn't have as much of that. He, 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 he may not rub everyone the wrong way, but he seems to have that effect on a lot of women. But she went on the date with him in part because, I mean, she'd already committed to it. And I think that it's different than today where people are more likely to go. There, there's to ghost or whatever. There's, there's <laughs> a, uh, there, 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 there was a kind of a more, the social compact was more that you, you, you know, you'd go along to be polite. And well, that was also true a generation after that there's less awareness of the danger. There's less awareness of a guy who might be dangerous, meeting you through the Lonely Hearts ads or through um, the modeling services or whatever. So the, the social prohibition against impoliteness ended up, uh, she went on the date with him. And I think she thought, well, just, just get this over with. But, of course, it ends up being a long and drawn-out evening. Uh, yeah, she... so, you know, the, her it, it's almost like a cavalcade because he comes and he meets her sons and she lives with her mother and, and they, they talk with him before. And then, you know, she, he, he's, he wants to take her dancing, but he says, no, let's, let's take a moonlight drive instead. There is a little bit of uh, foreplay that goes on with them. He tries to actually have force uh, sex with her, but she's 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 obviously un uncomfortable with that. She and she tries to pull away. She obviously wants the date to end, but he doesn't respond to that at all. She's eventually tied up again, like Judith Doll and murdered and it says here that he took pictures of her dead body and that to me also says that you have a you have an, an another further escalation so in this case you don't just have the the picture of someone in a state of terror and distress you also have you've had the murder integrated into the fantasy once she's dead but what struck me about this when i read about it was that he draws, it's, he sort of, he extends this and draws out the day. They spent a lot of time driving around. I think they, they go on a walk. I think that that's all part of the anticipation. Serial killers talk about how the hunt is a big part of the thrill. And in this case, I also think he knows what he's going to do. He knows she doesn't know. And it's in that, that manipulation, that drawing out of the, of the thing before he strings the trap that's a bit that's part of the the thrill for him i suspect because he doesn't immediately do it they they have this sort of this fairly extended evening and this is a time where 
you know, after he drives out to the the desert state park where he was plucked on a secluded spot, he unloads again the ritualistic aspect. He unloads his camera equipment, blanket, lengths of cord, and ga- gags, and walks her out in the desert. You know, not only he bebounds and molested her, but he waited for the photographs to be better lit. He waited for the dawn for the photographs to be best lit. So now Shirley is just a a vehicle for this thing, this whole ritual that's been built up in in his mind. And obviously, you know, when he was talking to the police afterwards, he said he felt sorry for her. He, He noted that pretty as the other girls and you know he felt sorry that she had the kids but you know he just he just had to do it and and again much more even much more than the Judith doll thing you know the Judith doll thing that the the premeditation was a kind of sketch now he knows where to go what to do and really what gets him off in in, in these situations yeah he's 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 done it before he has an, a, a modus operandi. He's got, he's got a place he takes the bodies. So all you have, all the, you have this overall, this sort of comfort with the situation. And, and of course, you know, he, he tells the, 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 the law enforcement and the, and, the, and the psychiatrist that, you know, it's a shame he had to do it. But, you know, that's perfunctory. He, he doesn't really have any feeling for them, other, other, you know, beyond the, beyond the most facile level in in it you know because otherwise you know he wouldn't do it or certainly wouldn't do it in, the, in this way um but but no i mean it, it this one is a bit different because it's th- it's through the lonely hearts it is a he, he's doing it. you wonder if maybe he, he did it differently because he thought maybe it would it, people wouldn't be looking for that you know in the way that they they were but he did have a, a a third woman who he who uh, he he met back through the 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 mo- the, the modeling photography thing right uh, and she had I think two names there was listed Ruth Mercado and Angela Rojas is that the case yep and and this is the last woman he's he murders because he has another woman after this he 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 tries to but it, it's not doesn't succeed. She was twenty four at the time. Oh, okay. Uh, an as- aspiring actress. Yeah, I mean, she she had a, a she she was uh, someone who maybe was less desperate in the way that that Shirley Bridgeford and Judy Dull had been, but maybe just a little bit green. Is that the case? What happened to her was probably what happens to so many women who go out to. Los Angeles, you know, she, she wants to be an aspiring actress, but she ends up doing this kind of modeling. Uh, she found a, an apartment in West, uh, West Boulevard, uh, where the, uh, you know, south, well south of the action of, of the daily grind of job hunting. You know, uh, she, she could have been a waitress, but instead she did modeling probably because it paid more. You know, she, she, had, she had been used to going to... Uh, men's houses to to do some of these kinds of uh, of modeling and she she's she she might not necessarily be someone who's naturally in a precarious situation either socially or economically but because of the nature of california at the time 
you know, the, 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 the potential, the dreams that, that draw people to, to the city at the time. She was again in, in you know, in, in a situation where she could be victimized by someone like, like Harvey Gutman. There wasn't really any protections, I think. Part of it also, it's, 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 it's important to note with Los Angeles at the time that there's always been a real dark underside to, to, to Los Angeles. You think of the 30s and 40s and 50s, the golden age of Hollywood. It's also the golden age of Hollywood being totally unrestrained in terms of, you know, there, there wasn't really any, any system set up to protect aspiring actors. And indeed, you'd, if you made it, you probably were preyed upon or were put in positions where you kind of had to do certain things that were compromising. And you wouldn't know that the guy who's going to photograph you was going to kill you, but Chances are, if you were going to try to make it in LA, you'd have to, you'd have, you'd have, you'd have to, uh, you know, not just the casting couch, but other, you know, other things. So, oh yeah, you know, you, right, was, right from you know, the, the the place where uh, you know Ruth McCullough was to the top of the the acting tree at the time. That you know, it was almost like a, there was a kind of you know implicit thing where people had to give parts of themselves up to the studio heads and producers in order to become you know what they became and and you know someone like this could well have interpreted that as part of the deal of the the city as as you've been saying you know you look at a lot of movie stars from in that time you probably find in many if not most cases that they if they if they were a male movie star or producer or, or director that they had taken advantage of many women or 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 the women had put themselves had in that position to try, as an attempt to try to get a foot in the door it's 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 not in hollywood you have a kind of a laissez faire thing with this in a, in a way that maybe ha- starts to happen in the in, in the 70s late 60s throughout the co- the country in terms of being a little more looser but I think in LA, that whole system is set up to exploit young actresses and young models, and and so there's a there's an there's an implicit or explicit pay to play, and so she and, and and that's also why you wouldn't necessarily see someone taking kinky photos of you as being intrinsically dangerous, and you wouldn't. It, it exists just to follow on for you say it, it almost exists in concentric circles because yeah, I think you know women go there. You know, and they understand the quid pro quo, obviously, after Me Too and, you know, things are changing and obviously they think changing for the better. But the history of the city is women go there they understand the quid pro quo. And to be honest, young men go there, um, even from Ivy League schools and all this. And and, and in exchange for, you know, they're not going to get paid that much, but they're going to be around a lot of these beautiful women. So. There's a there's also concentric circle of people like that, a sort of a, an inner concentric circle of maybe very predatory producers and people like that, and then an inner concentric circle of people like Harvey Gottman, who the quid pro quo is rape in, in your life. Right, and 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 it's and it's easier for someone like Harvey Gottman to, in some ways, melt into the crowd in a place like that where that is expected, in much the same oh, way happening. as as many who targeted young uh, young men and boys. Uh, you know, in Hollywood and elsewhere, um, could could as well. Um, it, it, you know, it, 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 it's something that 
that within that kind of environment, this minor predatory figure certainly could could blend in. Provides it provides a camouflage that the the predator will use. And at certain points, too late to get away. Oh, most definitely. So Gartman saw her ads in the paper and called her. They actually made an appointment for the late evening on July the 22nd. Uh, so he, he packed all of his paraphernalia and, uh, and then he went to see her, but she wouldn't answer the door and said that she was sick. He, on the next day, July the 23rd, he returned unannounced. And you know, again, uh, she was a little bit hesitant. And Goldman has actually stated that if she had said no this time, if she had rejected him, he would have stormed the door. So uh, Mikado yeah. was very much surprised by the the intervention and the coming of of of, of Altman, but she relented. Yeah. You know, he ordered her into the bedroom gagged her, tied her hands, uh, and f- fondled her for a while. You know, it, this was a little quicker than uh, the other ones. And, and by 11... This is in her home, right? In her home, yeah. By yeah. 11.30 p.m., we got me told Mikhail that he wanted to keep her a little longer and take her out for, for, for a drive, for a picnic, and more sex. Uh, actually, during this rape and sexual experience... The reason why Harvey Gottman has stated that Mikado, the one he really liked, is because in parts of the the raping, he felt that actually he wasn't raping her and that he was actually developing some sort of bond with her, which is a little bit different from, you know, his uh, his commanding molestations before it was based on dominance. He's beginning to fantasize here in this situation that there's some sort of reciprocity in the situation yeah that makes him a little bit distinct from other killers like that and i know they said in in one of the things i read that in some of the rapes i think in this it might have been ruth mercado that that he had he had told himself that she's enjoying it you know that's a different sort of rapist, according to the way the FBI and other criminology organizations separate them out. That's, you know, generally a sadist has absolutely no regard for caring whether, uh, whether a woman likes it or is into it. Maybe at this point what's going on is, is that since he's so much in control, since he's practiced this ritual and so much, so streamlined his focus that he's integrated some sort of perverse facsimile of the girlfriend experience into his, into his fan, into how he's conceiving of this mentally. And, and that it's, it's in a normal situation, someone who would not be socially inclined to connect to someone else that, that, that you could, in a normal situation, you could say this would be, that this could have been an advance, but this was just another thing he could add to his fantasy because he'd already got the control you know, maybe there was something in one of the detective magazines that was that had that aspect of it. But uh, and maybe he did find her more attractive. But that that's kind of beside the point, since, since she's a part of just a elaborate preordained fantasy. In this situation with Mikado, 
does say again when he's talking to the police afterwards that he felt like because of the connection that uh, maybe he should not kill her you know that um that he should find somewhere to leave her he you know and she could describe him to police but she had no address for him no phone numbers uh, de- detectives would be wasting their time but then you know in the end it, it just became a justification for him to lie to her and to to give to make her feel like she had a chance of coming out of the ordeal she didn't and and and, and what could be more of a exercise of control than not just choosing whether someone lives or dies, but choosing whether they think they're going to live or die, holding that their, their, you know, dearest hopes in the palm of your hand and being able to roll them around in your hand, like, like, you know, uh, marbles and, and just play it out as long as you want. Cause that's what I've been reading about this. I, you really, it, it gave me the impression when you read about, these sort of crimes you read about, you know, who the murder, who the murder was, who the murder victim was, how they were killed, when they were killed. This gives you a sense, a terrible sense of the day or so before that happened of the hopes and fears of this young woman and, and, and how he had told, you know, maybe he entertained for a second, letting her live. And sometimes sadists will let a victim live if they have, if they can control exactly what happens. Maybe if they, if they, wipe their memory or if they've or if they feel like they've scared them to the point where they can't do anything and that's a further extension of their control over their lives more so even than killing them but in this case i think it was just that he could not just make that decision but allow her to have this vain hope that is an even i think a more pure exercise of playing god than actually you know tying her up and because he, 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 you know, he knows he could make either decision, and either decision is totally determinative in one direction or another. And you know, when we get to um, to Ted Bundy, he he would buy mice when he was a little boy, and pick one to spare and kill the others. And I think it was the picking one to spare that emphasized the sense of being godlike. And I think that sort of that was probably the 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 ultimate power trip for Harvey Gladman was in. The, was in the thought that he could decide that she could live and that she could die, but he was going to make that decision. He, he ended up uh, killing her because he still had some level of that. That's what he ultimately what he wanted to do and what, what was necessary at that point to prevent him from getting uh, brought to any, uh, any his, his murderous spree to any end. He takes her into the car uh, he, you know, he's scared that someone might see the see, see the rope, so he puts the coat over her. He drives her into the car. From Oceanside, they drove eastward towards the desert, and pale dawn was breaking as they cleared Escodido. And uh, they drove for a while. They drove into the desert. They they had more sex. Again, he was thinking that this kind of thing was this kind of thing was mutual. And he says, you know, he despaired of a of, of a peaceable you know solution to to this um to this event and eventually again he he ties her up uh bounds her hands 
loops rope around her thighs and ankles, finally gagging her. As he's down at the apartment, he's satisfied uh, with the tableau that he's created, snaps several photographs, and then rows the cord to the five foot length cord of rope out from the from the from his hands, crouching next to her, going through the familiar motion, looping around the ankles, looping around the neck, back on his feet, pinning her with one foot in the middle of her back before she could protest and strangling her again. Yeah, I mean, I think I think it was something that was drawn out. And that maybe he played around in his mind with whether or not he was going to kill her. But in the end, all these, this whole thing follows the same ritualistic pattern. It's, it's every part of this is important to him. Every part of this is, is, uh, is necessary. Every part of this is repeated, basically the same. And in a sense, you could also say that part of this might've been externalizing blame. You know, there's a particularly vicious, uh, pair of killers, Lawrence Bittaker and Roy Norris, who, who killed several teenage girls uh, in the late seventies in California. And they would, uh, Lawrence Bittaker asked one of them if, to, to, you know, he said he was going to kill her unless she could come up with a reason for why she should live. And I sort of wonder if that was kind of like, he's given her the, in his mind, he's giving her this chance to do it. And he doesn't, he says he doesn't want to kill her because he likes her more, but you know, that's, that's, that's what he's going to do anyway. And maybe this was in a sense, a way to you play through this whole thing. And then maybe, she, and then maybe he thinks, well, it, it would have been nice to spare her, but you know, there wasn't, it, it was, it was never not going to be a, a foolproof trap, you know, it, you know, cause if it wasn't, then he wouldn't, he wouldn't ha- have this total control. He is in a position where he is feeling like he's just invincible. His 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 ego, his hubris is growing. Uh, his mental state really is deteriorating, and he he really needs more. He's using these pictures for his own uh, masturbation. He's 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 he's, he's fully internalizing it. He's going into the ritual, but he needs it again. He needs it again. Yeah, it's, it's what they call, I mean, this is a sort of a stage that they call, I think they usually refer to as devolving, you know, that he, that he, that it's, it's, it's taking, to, it's taking total control over him. It's causing him to take more risks. He's not someone who's naturally grandiose and narcissistic, but he's becoming, as you say, full of hubris. He's had these successes where he's played out his fantasy he's not been caught he's not been identified yet and i think whatever natural inadequacy he has both in how he senses himself and also how he senses himself physically not being a particularly large or powerful guy you know whatever whatever hesitation he might have had for any reason he is conditioning himself out of it and making himself into a, into a more seemingly powerful Person, but it is hubris. It is probably goes before the fall. <laughs> I was always and, told that uh, as, a, as a little kid, you know, that, that it, and uh, it is certainly hubris destroys more men than 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 greed or you know or or uh, or, or lust or anything. I you know that's a, that's an that's an adage, um, and 
you know, he already may have been destroyed to begin with, but he, he, uh, the next woman, he, he goes after Lorraine Vigil, I think her name is. And she's another Latino woman like Ruth Mercado or Andrew Rojas or other name. And I, I was struck that she looked a bit like, uh, a young Billy holiday. Uh, wow. Uh, if you look at the picture of her, that went, Billy Holiday, I just thought they looked somewhat similar. If you look at a picture of Billy Holiday when she was young, Lauren Vilho looked a bit like her. And uh, for whatever reason, she's going to be the one who survives him and who, through whatever constellation of tenacity in her part and good fortune, she's going to survive and he's going to get arrested. But uh, how, how, how does he go? How does he find her? What, what, what's, what happens there? Yeah, so the. At this moment, the the hubris congeals into him kind of becoming more and more abstract. He's becoming more unkempt. His his pungent aroma is growing. And he discovers the Diane studio in Hollywood at 500. Pungent aroma? Yeah. This is something that. uh, the 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 girl would uh, notice at the time, you know, he's he's his facade is cracking a little bit as his. He's not bathing. He's around. not. He's he is, is is that what it is or? Yeah, so he's not really taking care of himself. Yeah, uh, he's unkempt. Um, his, his 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 the amount of food his he's consuming is 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 varying at the time. He's 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 kind of losing it at this time. Yeah, but again, he wants he wants to fix, and you know he. He discovers a giant, the Ann studio. He puts out ads. Uh, he, 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 you know, he, he, Diane um, interviewed the new applicant and he, he liked what, what he saw. Diane took several po- photos of Lorraine as uh, visual later exclaims the police for display for potential customers. And uh, Lorraine was uh, quite an important uh, sort of a, becoming a little bit important model for that particular studio at the time but she really didn't like Goldman uh, when he he engaged with her so he, he called for Lorraine about 9 uh, 30 p.m at the west 6th street home where she boarded you know he blew his horn which she, she thought was quite arrogant and uh, when he took her into the car it was clear that he was driving away from the Diane studio because you know she knew the Diane studio, uh, but and he said no, we're going to his own studio, which kind of freaked her out. Noreen was was quite nervous, and then he's driving really really fast down San Santa a- a- Ana, and she begins to realize something terrible is occurring here. Yeah, I mean he's he's clearly this is typical of the evolving process when this happens is that they, they, they lose, they stop being careful. They stop even following the rules of their fantasy. Sometimes they, you know, happened in when, when Ted Bundy fully lost it on his rampage in Florida, he, 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 he went off his off book, off his MO, you know, actually had some level of uh, shame for having uh, lost control. Uh, not, not that he cared about people, but that he lost control in this case. Glattman is uh, has has lost the 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 plot because he's not he's not following any 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 uh, rules that would any his camouflage is gone his his uh, his ritual has fallen apart and Lorraine Vigil she she's able to see through it pretty quickly and 
and, and I don't know. There's, I mean, I don't, I don't want anyway malign any of the other women who he murdered. There's something about her that, and I think some was just good fortune. She was able to fight back against him before he was able to immobilize her by tying her up. Right. You know, again, that there's a there's a real push and pull in this situation that is uh, you can see is less in in in, in the, the the previous situations. You know, he's he's grabbing her by the neck, he's, he's, and she's pushing away. He's he's telling her, "Well, no, people just think we're necking. No one's going to know." You know, and um, yeah, and then Gartman, you know, he furiously snatches at the gun and and puts it at her and tells her he's going to shoot her. And, you know, this states that he's an ex-con and you know she's she's really scared and then he starts to tie her hands yeah and but uh you know in a moment of deep lucidity on her part she realizes that if he's tying her hands where is the gun and so she reaches for the gun and then they have a mad scramble for the gun and the gun goes off and he says i've shot you but he's saying it out of fear because that's not his ritual no you know he's losing control of the situation but lorraine work works out that she hasn't been shot and so she feels the bullet sort of sprain her thigh but she she manages to start wriggling away. She realizes she wasn't hurt. You know, she's tr- she's trying to shake off and get to her feet. Somehow she manages to turn the gun around and pull the trigger, but it didn't fire. She held. Uh, she hollered, uh, and then Lorraine. You know, she starts to move off. She starts to run away. Goldman is chasing her. A man on a motorcycle sees them both and you know and at the moment uh, the motorcycle screeches to a halt and the glare of the spotlight transfixed them it was uh, officer thomas f uh, mulligan of the california highway patrol is a husky former football player who happened to uh, come across them uh, lorraine starts shouting at him saying this person is crazy uh, he's trying to he's trying to kill me and uh, obviously, the nebbish, you know, Gartman in the face of, of this, this, you know, football player officer sort of sinks, you know, and uh, and eventually the, the police officer uh, takes him in and uh, and then they start interrogating uh, Harvey Gartman. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's you know, Providence or dumb luck is, as you could say, that that these that you have officers come by just at that moment. But you also have to give her credit for keeping her composure in that situation and be able to, find, you know, get at his gun. And at that point, uh, you know, he's he, he's going to be uh, he's going to jail. He's going to be charged with with three murders, and he's going to be you know seen by a bunch of more shrinks. And it's one of those things that that. Uh, gets resolved fairly quickly for that sort of situation because you see a lot of other cases, you know, things go through the courts, they can last decades. But at that time, they, they, they could sometimes um, go, you know, it could sometimes go pretty quickly through the courts. When my mom was a kid in uh, Lincoln, Nebraska, uh, you had a, 
Charles Starkweather and Caroline Fugate went on this rampage and inspired uh, several movies, you know, about, uh, young murderous lovers. And uh, when he was arrested, he was uh, convicted and executed fairly promptly. I think that happened in the 1950s. Mentioned in the open, he, he, did, he, had, he did, not, uh, did not do anything to, to spare himself. He was, you know, if he, you know all, all, all that motivated him, motivated him was, was these fantasies. Outside of that, there wasn't any reason he wanted to keep going. And one of the tragedies of this is it says, you know, his, his, mo- his mother was uh, 69 years old, still alive when this happened. In a lot of cases, you have these, these very nice, innocent parents. Not every parent of a serial killer is a horribly abusive or neglectful person. And she had no way of understanding what was going on. And it is, and she's in many ways, a tragic figure too, in this case. Um, but he, he says he pled guilty by reason of insanity, but the doctor saw no evidence of psychosis. So that's the kind of the fitting into this whole idea of him being schizophrenic. Maybe he was odd. Maybe his thinking was a bit strange and he was deviant, but I mean, I, I, I he, he wasn't psychotic. So at this point he's pled guilty. Once he's executed, he, I think he's basically mostly forgotten. I, I, I don't, I barely heard the name when I first started looking into the case, and I, I, I know the subject pretty well. He, the reason we started with him, he's, he, he's, he's a, an entry point to, to, the, to, to, to this um, vast story, and uh, I think the reason people are in, so interested in serial killers is part of it's the the car wreck thing. It's a, there's a morbid fascination. Part of it seems so alien and different and dangerous like sharks. But part of it is also that I think people do genuinely want to understand psychologically. And, 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 in a, and also what, 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 what you can do is you can sort of see them as a, as, as a kind of a macabre canaries in the coal mine, kind of an indicator of other things that are happening in society. And that's what we're going to try to do in this series. We're going to try to, uh, to take to 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 use to use um, the the outbreak of serial murder that happens that really balloons out of control a little over a decade after Harvey Gladman is executed, and we're gonna uh, and and we're starting sort of small fry and going and expanding from there, and uh, I think it, in a way that hopefully will help us understand period of and 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 understand the the part of our humanity that thankfully for most of us remains buried in our ancient past. But for a few of us, like Harvey Gladman, it, 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 it explodes. And unfortunately, there's a whole lot more that, 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 were, that were a whole lot like him in those years. And it was a very dangerous time to be young in, 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 uh, in the decades that followed. Uh, Gottman is just the, the beginning, sort of the, the, the tip of the spear the 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 understanding of 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 Galtman and, and and other serial killers going back to far as the medieval period and even into our own genetic history and then coming back to this 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 period this apogee of of uh, this kind of crime in 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 America and, and in some ways in, in Western in Western history and, and what thought that really reflects of the culture at the time. 
you know, it, and so it reflects things. it and drives it in many ways because the world I grew up in, you know, being born in the 1980s, you were born a little bit later, but it, it, it's a, there's a very different world than if you grew up a few decades earlier. A very different world if you grew up a few decades afterwards as well. It's a, it's a very yeah. unique time. It, it is. It, it, it's, a, it's a time where that line uh, by Antonio Gramsci about monsters being born in between periods and uh there, there, there there's a sort of a, a strange period that happens the 19 it, it, the 1950s is in many ways the cauldron you know it's where you know the, you know he, this is a uh, gladman is the first bubble coming to the surface but it's in many ways the cauldron that would explode um a couple decades uh, later and you know i i think that that what's interesting about the subject, one of the reasons it's such a popular subject is, is that it's something that people want to understand, something people are a little bit afraid of, but also something that, that has a lot of, a, a lot of corridors that you can go down with it that are not just about, you know, prurient interest or the gruesomeness of it, which is, which is cheap and boring and bad taste. It's, 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 uh, you know, I, much more interesting to, 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 to see this as an entry point because there's always a story that is beyond just the crimes. There's always something where you can understand it, but um, this, uh, but it's, it's strange to say that, that this uh, guy who is not super well known, who didn't kill as many people as some is such a darkly prophetic figure. And in the case of this uh, podcast series, is as you said, he's the he's the tip of the spear. He's the top of the iceberg. You know, below the below the water, there's there's a mountain. Uh, you know, it's it the the it, it, the farther you go, the the bigger it gets, and the, and you get a total picture, eventually a a tableau of the of the of of, of an epoch that is. Um, you see that you see the the dark reflection of, of of all the all the things that were wrong and not sufficiently addressed in society that were that were people wanted to ignore, but that like so many psychological problems deep in our psyche, you know, you try to shove them down, but they're going to come back up. And in many ways, these these figures in every era they live in and every place they live in are the evidence of something society is not adequately addressed or doesn't know, understand yet. And uh, that's, that's, I think, where, where it gets interesting. And that's where I think we're going to try to take this. Yeah, these uh, killers are, you know, the stories, they might seem in some ways to be, you know, exist on their own terms, but they're ciphers, for, for for some things, for for greater things on the ge genetic level, for greater things on social level, on a cultural level, even on a political level, this is you know this is this is a particular place and time where even the murderers uh, were, were really ciphers for 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 the whole culture, and, and I think Gottman, as we say, is the is, is the tip of the spear and. And this podcast intends, as it as it began, to really 
on a basic level, it's about America、uh, and its relation to to itself and how and how it changed、uh, forever.